Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we've got such an important show for you today, of course, leading into uh, the holiday season. I want to uh, tell you that today you are in for a treat. The Philanthropic Mind is the book. The author is Mo Litsky, and he is here with us today. We're going to start off the show, as we always do, with Page One News. Over here on page one, news. Of course, Giving Tuesday is coming up. That's on December 1st. 2015. You know about Black Friday and Cyber Monday. We'll make sure that you know about Giving Tuesday. And I ran across a really terrific video, and I wanted to uh, invite George Weiner, who is the founder and CEO of WholeWhale.com, uh, to join us. But before I bring him in on the show to talk to us a little bit here on page one about Giving Tuesday, take a listen to a couple minutes of this terrific video. If you're in fundraising, that means you're in sales. Because anytime someone says, I'm going to give you a dollar, that means they bought into the idea that this dollar equals this impact, which means you've made an emotional connection with them. You have to start off with that at the core, why someone wants to give as opposed to the how and the what. So let's talk about some tactics here. Hashtag Giving Tuesday is an example of a day of giving. It's fantastic because it creates urgency. We've got one day to do this, which means that there's a deadline. You can have people that are going to procrastinate, but they're going to try to donate in this time frame. It lets you test out different campaign ideas and really engage your supporters if you do it correctly. We've got 29 tips on this uh, on Whole Whale's site for ideas for Giving Tuesday. Encourage you to check those out. You don't ask someone to marry you on the first date. That's weird. Don't do that. So in the same sense that if the day of giving is the first time you're trying to get someone to donate, uh, that might be a bit awkward. It tends to take in So, uh, George Weiner, thank you for joining us. I, I wish I had time here on the show to just share this entire terrific video that you have. I know that it's over at wholewhale.com. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, George Weiner. Hey, thanks, Ted. Uh, thrilled that you found us and love that you're sharing it with your audience. Well, it, Giving Tuesday, of course, uh, just has been growing year after year, uh, and it's such an important topic here on the Nonprofit Coach, always trying to give good tips on how to really do a good job on Giving Tuesday, which is not just about how many emails you can send out on one day. But uh, tell us, 
from your perspective, and I know we don't have time, sorry, to go over 29 different really great tips that you have. <laughs> They're just going to have to go to wholewhale.com and watch it for themselves. Very entertaining, really very well done. But, but give us sort of some of your top tips, and, and why did you put this video together for Giving Tuesday? Big picture, I love what Giving Tuesday is trying to do, right? It's been around for a number of years, starting in 2012. It grew by 63% over the past year from 2013 to 2014, and it's a moment, right? It's a moment where we can say, as you just said, hey, look, you know there's Black Friday. We all love swarming the, the local something or another mart. Cyber Monday, sure, let's go click crazy. But, like, this is a moment where not-for-profits can really get together, build momentum around this. And so this is why I wanted to drive a lot of attention, best practice ideas uh, for framing what we can really be doing with the day. And you know what? I, I've heard uh, episodes on your show, and your audience gets it. The raw ingredients are there. But when you're talking about Giving Tuesday, uh, it's important not to sort of get get caught in the fray of, look, it's a busy day, and all we have to do is participate on this hashtag, and you know the money will come. In honest, uh, look, the average amount that a nonprofit is raising is between three and $4,000 on the given day, but it's an opportunity to start the conversation of the giving season. And so if you couch it in that, uh, there's some then fun things that you can do to experiment with it. I think using it as sort of the, the kickoff to the giving season, the philanthropic uh, season, is really a, a terrific way to view uh, Giving Tuesday. It's, a, it's also a wonderful day to say thank you, right? Yeah, why not, right? You have a bunch of people that are hopefully on your list. You've been building them up over time, and this is an excuse to have that initial ask. And so some of the things, if we're getting into the, the practical tips that, that you can do is, first off, people love matching gifts. It just feels good. We're doubling our gift. Find that large donor in your internal audience and say, hey, we're running a crowd giving thing. It's an experiment. I don't know what's going to happen. Do you have you know, 15000 Do you have 10000 just to match up this amount? We don't even know if we'll get there, and that will just start the rallying. Then you can use some other things like social norming and price anchoring that we like to talk about. So the average gift donation amount thereabouts in 2013, uh, 2014 was around $140, $150. Uh, this is according to BlackPod stats. And so you can say like the average amount, and this is a very subtle way of like when you're designing that form and that page for Giving Tuesday to have the auto click just go to a certain level. Um, again, you know this is an audience that you're potential potentially warming. If you're thinking you're going to find a whole bunch of new people, you know uh, you may be uh, a little bit misled. Well, uh, George Weiner, you have terrific uh, insight into uh, the philanthropic mind, which is the topic of the book that we're going to uh, be spending the rest of uh, sh the show on today. I want to encourage my listeners to go to wholewhale.com, watch this video, get to know the work of uh, George Weiner, the founder and CEO there. Uh, and George, I, I, I know that uh, I had a chance to speak to our producer, Diane Peach, and told her we need to find a time to have you come back and give you more time on the show to share your uh, your great insights and tips. But thank you for uh, joining us here on page one of the Nonprofit Coach today. Hey, Ted, thanks so much. And a final reminder, the only way to fail on Giving Tuesday is by not measuring the results. So pay attention to those numbers. You got it. Very good advice. Thank you. And we're going to uh, head right on over to page two. Mo Litsky is a partner and senior managing director at Prime Quadrant. Prior to Prime Quadrant, Mo was a co-founder and owner of TMX, Inc. More importantly, at least from my perspective, he has been involved with philanthropy for a number of years. He continues to sit on the boards of directors of several not-for-profit organizations, including C.J. Pack, Jerusalem College for Technology, Hebrew University, and most importantly for me as uh, the president of CAF Canada and CEO of CAF America, is he currently serves on the board of directors of CAF CAFCanada.ca uh, and serves as our treasurer. He also serves as an investment policy advisor for Canada Gives Foundation and the chair of the Prime Quadrant Foundation. This guy really knows his stuff when it comes to philanthropy, and I am thrilled to welcome him here as our guest on the Nonprofit Coach to share with us the incredible insights uh, in this book, The Philanthropic Mind. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach, Mo Litsky. Thank you, Ted. Pleasure to join you. Thank you very much for having me. 
What an incredible piece of work you uh, have created here uh, with this book. It's really a pleasure to read anyone who cares about philanthropy. Of course, one of the things that um, you know, every development officer, every nonprofit executive wants to do is to get inside that philanthropist's mind to know how they tick, what they're looking for. And you've learned a lot and you've shared a lot uh, in this book. I'm going to, um, first of all, ask you, the genesis of this book and why write this book, The Philanthropic Mind? Uh, sure. So uh, for starters, it wasn't just my idea. This was a project of, uh, with my co-author, Chuck English. But my personal inspiration for this book came when I uh, was thrust into the role of a CEO of a nonprofit organization some 10 years ago. And without having any background in fundraising, I went to a local bookstore and there were many fantastic books from brilliant consultants such as yourself and all of your great books, which I read cover to cover. But what I found was that none of these books actually came from the philanthropists themselves, and I was much more interested in hearing they, their thoughts on how they wanted to be solicited um, rather than from the third party. So that really started the genesis of, of conversations that eventually evolved into the philanthropic mind. And in developing this concept of philanthropic mind, obviously, to really tell the story, you had to actually sit down and interview, and you have, um, some very prominent uh, philanthropists. How did you get the access? (laughs) Somehow that's the first question everybody asks. Uh, I will tell you, um, it wasn't necessarily easy, but it happens to be, individuals with whom um, I've had either a charitable or uh, business or social relationship. And I guess the prevailing theme throughout the book, which is relationships and people, is the same way that I ended up getting all of the um, interviews, conversations, and the same reason that they all gave me the time of day. Well, and they certainly did. The insights that that you gained that we're going to share today, which is just perfect timing, and in this day that we're all preparing for Giving Tuesday, the the start of the philanthropic season, uh, this is really perfect for getting all of our listeners here today to really sort of get their their heads in the right place in terms of the discussions and conversations that they're going to have and need to have over the next several weeks in preparing for a fantastic and successful uh, year end for their their year. So I, I want to start off by sharing something from your book that I just think is so powerful and frames um, much of the discussion that I want to have with you today because I think you, you, have, you have cracked a little bit of a code here. Um, it says, for decades, researchers have been dwelling on the question of why philanthropists give. Academics have conducted thousands of experiments. And in 2011, uh, scholars Renee Becker and Pamela Wipking uh, surveyed over 500 peer-reviewed articles and studies of philanthropy. Their articles were from a wide range of disciplines, including economics, marketing, social psychology, political science, anthropology, and even neurology. Yet virtually every paper on the subject concluded with the researcher being unable to develop a satisfactory theory of donor behavior. It reflects a complicated set of motive, motivations not easily summed up in a single formula. And, and I think that, that sort of frames your book because all of these philanthropists who, who are speaking to us through your book, um, one of the things that I, I, I sort of got from them was they would like to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, precisely. I, I think that if somebody asked me at the end of the day, what was the one thing that someone takes away from from reading it? I, I would say it really does come down to, to people and passion. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more that we could and should and will cover, but people and passion, I mean, when you have the right people bring you to the table, when it's the, the trust and the, the integrity that, uh, that you could leverage from other relationships and you could focus on the, the philanthropist as individuals, as a human being, you and I, same needs, desires, aspirations, and keeping them in mind in every conversation um, as opposed to the cause, the organization, what have you, and effectively back-ending into the cause, that will tends to yield uh, the highest results, uh, the most ex- and, and um, 
produce the most successful results. The the uh, the uh, other piece is the, the the passion component, and that really is you know what we're talking about is a transfer of emotion, you know, and and passion is the vehicle for transferring emotion. There are no shortage of problems, causes, issues to resolve, and um, what will set apart one organization or one cause from the 86,000 others that we have in Canada. Um, So what that typically is, um, and most commonly, tends to surround people in passion. And and it also comes to... Seems to be that again from our conversations, um, and I could get into individual stories, but passion tends to compensate for other shortcomings, and people tend to compensate for other shortcomings. And the reality is, no organization under the sun is perfect, no infrastructure is perfect, and so we need a lot of leeway. Um, and uh, when you have people and passion and it's properly aligned, uh, you can make a lot of interesting things happen. I, I love how you, you you frame that with people and passion and, and the individual nature, and I think that's why there it, it has been so impossible and likely will remain to be impossible that there is a single formula um, because philanthropy is so individual uh, and is tied up in things that are very hard to measure, even for the philanthropist, uh, and that is their, their own personal passion. I, I think you made a very powerful statement um, a moment ago, and I want to ask you, in the framework of the philanthropic mind, to help us understand the statement that you make. It's been said here on this show before, and I think it, it, is, a, it is a trend that has to be really recognized um, in philanthropy, is that it's less about the organization than it is the mission. And so it, it could be any number of organizations that might get the philanthropic support it's who's doing the better job and and who can connect on that passionate level. Yeah, I, I think it actually it gets a little bit um, – it, it goes a little deeper. Um, what I – you know, yes, there's the people component of who will introduce you and get you in the door and bring you to the table. That's certainly one component of people. The second component of people is in terms of why would you, your cause, your organization, why would it resonate? Why should it resonate? And – you know, one of the things I, I, I think, you know, we, we were going to touch on was, um, uh, uh, you know, the giving history or or uh, prospect research. And, you know, I, I guess if you look at traditional prospect research and basic common sense would suggest that, you know, past gifts are indicative of future gifts. And that may be true, but they are – but the way how they are indicative of future gifts is not always apparent. And when we looked at some of the largest gifts in this country – they actually had, um, most of them had no personal precedence for the donor. In other words, in one example, somebody named a, a, one example in the book, and I think it's in the earlier pages, that someone named a Shakespearean amphitheater, um, and they gave, but, but they have limited interest in Shakespeare. Their real interest was in advancing the legacy of the Stratford, the town from mm-hmm. where this amphitheater mm-hmm. is located, and the fact right. that the amphitheater happens to be where both of the parents are from. So it was this deeply personal uh, connection not to the not to Shakespeare, not to the amphitheater, and in truth, not even to the town, but to the family and how much it would have meant to the parents. And what that means is that prospect research it cannot be simply about the what uh, what has been done in the past, but more importantly, must include the why. And the why is always a very deeply personal um, uh, reason or cause. I, I love that story, and I, I do want to talk more about that because that's a great case study that you have in the book and, and another reason why people should get your book and, and read it. Uh, it, it Carlo Fidani, in, in your one of your interviews, said, I would argue that the people who have their handout, and he mentions the 86,000 nonprofit organizations in Canada, have to get better at it and understand what will turn on the thoughtful philanthropist and what they're looking for. So, I mean, he's clear, he's he's sort of qualifying there the thoughtful philanthropist, and I think that person can come in a lot of different shapes and forms and and bank account levels. Um, but he, right. he's sort of pleading, he's sort of pleading to do a better job and not just ask for money. Yeah, precisely. I, I think that you know, there's a some famous McKinsey study, which I referenced, I believe I referenced in the book, if not uh, referenced in one of my writings, where um, the McKinsey study suggests that there is $100 billion 
of of capital that's left on the table by nonprofits because of um, a poor solicitation, best practices, poor fundraising infrastructure, and also not lending, not allowing philanthropists to be more thoughtful in their giving. And if if um, uh, what happens is, and, and the other motivation for me embarking on this project was that I was dealing with a lot of these philanthropists, or not, not necessarily the ones in the book, but many others, um, on a business basis. And what I found was the way that they approached their business, their investments, uh, was fundamentally different than the way that they approached their giving. One was deeply strategic, thoughtful, enormous amount of resources went into the planning, all of their investments, of all of their assets, whereas on the charitable side, it tended to be much more reactive, a little bit more emotional, and a lot more relationship-oriented. Um, so one of the goals of this, this book is really even for the philanthropists to start to look at precedent from previous philanthropists and uh, experiments, such as Carlo Fidani, who does a brilliant job, who really takes almost what I would call a private equity approach to his philanthropy and his giving. Um, and uh, it, it would, I believe, your previous guest on the show referenced, I mean, leveraging up uh, his philanthropy in such a way where the sum of the parts is, is much greater than, than, the, the, than the individual components. I, going back to the story that you had mentioned before, Kelly uh, Megan, uh, who is the president of the T.R. Megan Family Foundation, and the philanthropy that they have given, which has made an incredible difference to Stratford. Um, and, but the, it's the reason behind that and the story behind that philanthropy that you wouldn't necessarily suggest. And I would imagine that um, when there's research done, and I think this is a very good case study, when there's research done on that particular foundation and uh, an arts organization, for instance, sees that they're providing such substantial support to Stratford, they would immediately assume, well, they're an arts foundation and they support arts um, because it's art, but someone who actually has the relationship and has gotten to know that foundation understands that it's a, a much deeper and, as you said, complicated reason why they're supportive, which is very personal and very tied into legacy. Exactly. And I, I think, I mean, your conversation kind of gets to the heart of some of the stated mandates of family foundations, of private foundations, and, and, it, and it comes back to Kelly Mean and it comes back to past uh, giving history. And, and the, the, the fact is it also comes back to the fact that philanthropists are people and people with normal relationships whose relationships tend to, to be a much greater drive of their decisions irrespective of what the mandate of the foundation may be. And I think that just because the foundation doesn't give to something doesn't, also doesn't mean that they wouldn't personally do so. Oftentimes, um, people focus the efforts of a foundation on a specific theme or cause, um, either because it was agreed upon by other related parties, perhaps there are common assets that went in, or because it's just easier to deflect solicitations that aren't within the foundation's purview. But the reality right. is, and, and it's as we have seen from all of our interviews, there are exceptions to every rule, and personal interests and passions of these individuals are usually quite diverse, and their giving uh, is commensurate. So, again, doing your research, understanding and building that relationship is is the only way that you can really understand the philanthropic mind. Precisely. So uh, what I wanted to go next um, with, uh, again, a really a, a terrific book, um, and and you've, you've mentioned it and I've mentioned it as well. I want to make sure that our, our readers uh, understand that the, the philanthropists that are interviewed and the perspective of this book is from a Canadian perspective. Um, but I know that, uh, Mo, you're very familiar with uh, U.S. American uh, philanthropy, and I think a lot of what's learned in this book and, and the messages, um, you know, would be mirrored in in um, similar kind of approach from America, because 
Um, you know, I, I think Canada and the U.S. are, are very similar. There may be some some differences here, but I think philanthropists um, in in this entire uh, book um, have a theme here of wanting to be understood, wanting to be valued for their philanthropy, and and I think almost challenging themselves to be more strategic. Yeah, I mean, uh, precisely. I'll tell you, you know, just you referenced the the U.S. Canada divide. Um, the only it wasn't didn't really come up in the research for the book, but just from uh, personal experience, uh, we had a an effort here to uh, engage local philanthropists, Canadian philanthropists, in Buffett's uh, pledge in his giving pledge, and mm-hmm. what, what we found interesting observing you know, um, uh, kind of looking over south of the border where there was a lot of billionaire um, philanthropists that were kind of clamming to participate and get their name out there, first of all, A, as a billionaire, and B, as somebody who's giving away half their estate to charity, where when we try to aggregate this group in, on this side of the border in Canada, um, there was, I mean, uh, <laughs> reluctance would be an understatement. Nobody wanted anybody to know how much they have. So there's just a different sensitivity in terms of mm. how public people are with their giving, and that right. also translates into recognition. But in general, um, the, the same the same principles hold true, and when it comes to strategy and thoughtfulness and having an impact and being a positive example to their children and you know, feeling like they're in a community of givers, everybody – it tends to have the same general objectives. It's just how they manifest and express those objectives and personal interests that's profoundly different from one to the other. And and really uh, is important for development officers and nonprofit executives to understand. But we're going to take a, a just a real quick break here. And when we come back, I wanted to ask you to focus in a little bit on Lawrence Bloomberg um, and the the whole notion of accountability and setting requirements and the role of the philanthropist in helping guide the uh, charity. Uh, in the use of their uh, donated funds. And we'll be right back. When you have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices. Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles. And work together on the same docs at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. Edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting. Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks. Everyone can't be in the same place at the same time, but Google Apps lets you work together from any place. With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. while screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere, on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team at any time, from any place, on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. To learn more, go to google.com apps. 
couple of programming notes here to get your calendar out. Uh, we are on a break uh, for next week. Um, I will be speaking at the National Philanthropy Day lecture um, near Washington, D.C. on November 17th. And so this show returns uh, in a big way on November 24th um, when we uh, will have the authors of Writing to Win Federal Grants, a must-have for your fundraising toolbox right here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. And then just looking ahead, I know this is uh, one of our biggest shows of the year. Um, I wanted to let you know that uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace will be back for our big holiday show on December 8th at 12 noon Eastern. So make sure you mark your calendar for this year's opportunity to speak with Kay Sprinkle Grace. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we are back here live on The Nonprofit Coach with Mo Litsky, uh, the co-author of The Philanthropic Mind, Canada's top donors. Um, and I also want to make note that you can ask questions over in the chat room. Uh, you can also email us your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. So, Mo, we're, we're back here, and I wondered if you would share with us what is learned from Lawrence Bloomberg and this whole notion of accountability from the philanthropist's point of view. Okay, so it's a great question. Uh, I think that uh, goes to the heart of, and I, I believe you're referencing the chapter on embracing the difficult donor. And uh, so the, the, the question has been posed to me in a, a number of different contexts. Well, one of the messages, the key messages we try to get across is that the most difficult do donors that you have are often the ones where you have the most potential. And, yes, this is a business, philanthropy is a business in which you need to develop a Ph.D. in emotional intelligence and learn how to accommodate a variety of individuals. But if you could work with difficult people, uh, it pays off in spades. And it's not difficult. Um, I don't mean difficult uh, demanding in terms of making your life miserable. Those individuals, life is too short, and there's no gift that's large enough uh, to make your life miserable. But what, what I really refer to are individuals that are constantly challenging uh, and philanthropists and donors that are challenging the organizations, challenging the professionals to become better and um, uh, to, to have more robust metrics, to have more professionalism, stronger infrastructure, and so on. And the payoff, Lawrence Bloomberg happens to be a highly sophisticated philanthropist here, and he, uh, he puts his money where his mouth is, and he puts his time where his mouth is. So um, he not only has supported um, countless organizations in Canada, but has also invested a great deal of time in bringing those visions to reality. But, you know, you have other individuals like Seymour Schulich, who has named uh, at this point uh, probably close to a dozen universities and, uh, or colleges. And he has very strict criteria uh, for his benefactions, and he will not compromise on those criteria. And those criteria often require the universities to stretch quite a bit to meet them. But the consequence of that's, those, that's, those stretches, as it were, is the fact that they were, they've all multiplied their, um, their, uh, the dollars raised, they've increased enrollment, they've increased the, uh, the number of relationships um, and it's given them a tremendous amount of credibility knowing that they were one of the Schulich benefactions. So the difficult donors, again, as long as they're not making your life miserable, are, are probably the most prized possessions of most organizations, and they're also the ones that are most neglected. And there's one other piece that I think um, is important, to, be, uh, is important to, to capture, and that is that the, the difficult donors are also providing opportunities you know, I mean, one of the um, one of the stories that we referenced in the book is about a particular philanthropist who saw the CEO of a hospital at a cocktail party, and he started complaining about the ho how the hospital waiting rooms were outdated. And he recalled an experience when he was waiting for birth of a grandchild in a waiting area that was disgraceful, dirty, couches were filthy, no television, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the CEO of the hospital looked at him, and instead of apologizing, 
He said, well, then why don't you buy us a new one? <laughs> why don't you pay for us to make a nice waiting room? And if you want one and if you think it's important, please do it for us. We'd greatly appreciate it. And the philanthropist, though slightly, you know, obviously taken aback, responded, uh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, so yeah. I think that the having donors that are challenging you, that are difficult, first of all, it shows that they have a tremendous amount of fire, which could be leveraged to the benefit of the organization. And, and secondly, um, they, they may be the most valuable asset that the organization has. Well, and, and and I think you know as you, as you, I think you're you're sharing with us the the notion of a difficult uh, donor or demanding uh, donor comes in a variety of different flavors and sort of intensities. Uh, and, and my experience is that that they tend to come from a couple of different viewpoints. Uh, one is that they may lack the trust in the nonprofit, but they have interest in the mission. So part of their philanthropy is actually a desire on their part to see the nonprofit improve. Uh, and that mm-hmm. through the power of their philanthropy, and I think in a very strategic way, um, what they want to do is they want to have more impact than just the money that they're giving. Uh, but they want to see the organization become a very good steward of their money, um, and they have very specific criteria in some cases. Uh, but certainly, um, even if it doesn't come as sort of a, a you know a checklist, um, they certainly have right. expectations that need to be met. Uh, if, in fact, you're going to want that donor to do two very important things, that is potentially to give again, but even more importantly, to tell all of their friends what a great experience they had in being a donor, uh, because the worst thing that can happen to uh, a nonprofit is to get it wrong and to have that philanthropist then tell all their friends how their money was squandered or how they were mistreated as a donor. So, so the, getting the relationship right is so important but I think it also comes from a, from a, a, a different perspective. So sometimes I think it it comes from this this notion of not necessarily having the trust in the nonprofit's inherent ability to be a good steward and wanting to change that dynamic. Um, the the other Correct. comes from the the the, the perspective of the, the donor having the, the trust and wanting to inspire the organization to be greater than maybe they could envision themselves to be. Right. Right. I would so agree I, with I, that. I think I, I think the demanding donor. So part of the relationship and part of the understanding that I think you're you're helping really you know couch the question, but also provide part of the answer to in the, the philanthropic mind um, is to really understand where your donor is coming from, and to be very clear on what that relationship is, because I think any ambiguity in that relationship, anything left unsaid potentially leaves it open for disappointment on one side or the other. Precisely. Precisely. And and again, you know, what's interesting about that is, and I think the nonprofit sector is, is unique in the sense that unlike accounting, finance, law, engineering, or any traditional, uh, any common fields, People come into the nonprofit sector from everywhere, from the arts, from the sciences, from education, from anywhere. And there is, and it's not as if they've got, you know, as if the, the lion's share of the industry has been trained and received masters and PhDs in, in, in nonprofit management. That's still a very small subset. So what ends up happening is there's a lot of learning on the fly. And what was interesting is a, a lot of, you know, even demanding donors, and uh, those that require metrics, those that require, uh, you know, uh, are very strict on accountability, are often very forgiving when uh, when they when things don't go well, because they are they are familiar with things not going well in their business. No business has everything going well, um, and there are even I mean we had some hysterical stories of things that didn't go well when <laughs> there was no reason to forgive them. Uh, I think it was one case when somebody named the gymnasium, and when they went to see the organization, they <laughs> on their first visit, they, they showed them the building, their name hung above a library, and the, the philanthropist <laughs> said, well, I thought we were paying for a gymnasium. He said, well, yeah, but we decided a library was more valuable for us. And <laughs> the most remarkable thing about that story was the philanthropist kind of chuckled <laughs> and maintained the relationship. Now... I mean, in any other field, in any other endeavor, the professional would be kicked to the curb 
and um, a forgotten memory other than a, a, an entertaining cocktail story. But in the nonprofit world, that relationship, again, I'm not suggesting this is optimal <laughs> best practice. No, I was going to say, I think for most nonprofits, that would that would have been a kick to the curb. But they, I think they got lucky and had a good humored philanthropist in this, this regard. I, I think it got lucky, but I think it just speaks to the fact that a lot of this is about relationship. A lot of it is, is right. advancing the broader vision of the organization. And um, and that's really where, where some of your comments fall in. So what do you think from uh, having had the opportunity to actually sit down with all these uh, philanthropists and really you know get within their mind and understand are there common themes across the board uh that that is common to every philanthropist that we can take away um or is it as fragmented as the individuals hmm good question um so I think the one common I will tell you one thing that almost we we asked as many questions as we could get away asking. I mean, forty fifty would probably be um, would be underestimating it. But one of the questions that was fairly consistent, which was remarkable, was we asked if there were any regrets. Um, did any philanthropists have any regrets in some of their in their own kind of giving careers, if, as it were? And across the board, every single one of them said no. Across the board, I believe they all said it with utmost sincerity, and I believe they all meant it. And many of them qualified by saying that my only regret is I wish I had either given more or I had started giving earlier in my life. And um, and in fact, I mean, if you if you think about that, I mean, that it's just a, a remarkable consistency. I mean, it's probably like children. You know, I don't know how many people say that they would regret having their children. You know, it's it's it. But once you you may think twice before, but once you've have it, it's it's such a a, a beautiful experience that you 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 were hoping for more, or perhaps wish you'd done it a little sooner. And from time to time. Um, I would hear stories, and, and, and Chuck and I would hear stories in the context of our interviews of uh, philanthropists that were twist, whose arms were twisted to go to events or twisted into giving something or supporting something. And then subsequently, they, you know, after being at the event, um, they just determined they did not give enough money. And so the takeaway, I guess, for many fundraisers is that after a major campaign or a large gala, when they're usually taking a breather, ironically, that may be the best time to follow up and see if anyone has interest in increasing their commitment. And the other, you know, the other common theme, uh, key takeaway is for those that had children, um, all of them want their children to follow their philanthropic path, even if they don't necessarily want them to have as much capital as they do and they want them to tread their own path professionally. But philanthropically, and at least sharing those values, I mean, it, just to give you a sense of how dramatic it is, I mean, one of the philanthropists we interviewed shared a frustration that she would deposit or, or he would deposit a um, a $50,000 check into the children's account for the charity every single year and come back a few years later and see that there's uh, several hundred thousand dollars unspent. And they actually had to hire a consultant to teach their kids about philanthropy. I mean, it's it's a very dramatic example, uh, but it, it does showcase how much they want their giving, not just to um, to, to um, uh, uh, you know be part of their lives, but really be part of the family. And I, you know, that also comes back to the fact that. Um, Nobody, you know, we had a lot of people that that tell us that, you know, they're going on a charitable diet or, you know, they're cutting back their giving. And the reality is, in some cases, we had two-part conversations or two-part interviews, and we would come back and speak to them, or three-part interviews, and we would speak to them again. And the the very charities that they pledged and that they would not give to, they've gotten involved with and are happy that they're involved with. So I'd say if there was a one common theme, it's the fact that none of them regret the giving they do. In the not regretting, um, were there themes on what they liked that charities would do? I, my, I mean, my, my guess is that there were few of them that said, wow, I just love a charity dinner. 
uh, and can't wait until I get my next invitation and I can't wait to go. <laughs> Yet, um, they do become important touch points for philanthropists. So what are charities getting right that the philanthropists like? Um, and what are they getting right that maybe philanthropists don't care so much for? But works. So, it's actually it's an interesting question. Um, I think that uh, the thing, the the irony was that there was a certain um, paradox, and again we referenced this quite extensively in the book, and that everybody we spoke to said that they have more money than time. I mean, whether they said it overtly or implied it, uh, the the fact is they were all claimed how limited their time was. And ironically, they um, they all believe that to be able to, that for them to give something major, they would have to be involved with it by virtue of their time. So there is this paradox that, you know, they have more money than time, but when you want their money to support your organization or charity or cause, you actually need to get their time to do it. So many will say, that they don't need another dinner. Many will say that they don't need to be involved, but at the same time, deep down, they all, many actually believe that they, they they need to be involved, they need to attend, uh, and they feel a desire to do so. So we were constantly getting this, um, and I don't think anybody was insincere. I just think that you know we were getting these mixed messages from just about everybody we spoke to. Um, and, the, the other and, thing, and I think looking yeah, at it from a fundraiser's point of view is I think for a lot of professionals, um, they kind of experience that um, sort of philanthropist of two minds. And maneuvering through that can oftentimes be the full-time job. Precisely. And, I mean, the other thing that I, I would add to that in terms of a pet peeve that many of them referenced is um, is the fact that the solicitation came too late, which is interesting. I mean, the, the um, m- many have mentioned that one of the most annoying things is when they are being wined and dined and not asked for something because they're not stupid. They're well aware, um, and the anxiety that's built up is actually less pleasant than having the ask be out on the table as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that would that ended up being fairly consistent. As much as they were afraid of the ask, they also welcomed it and uh, would rather see it come sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Well, as I train a lot of uh, fundraising professionals, development officers, executives, uh, as you know, and one of the things that I always make sure that I share with them is, you know, don't think you're the first one to make an ask. And right. so how how well you do is really partly measured by those who have come before you who may have horribly missed the mark, and part of your success may be in getting it right or being respectful in the ask. But don't waste right. their time in making it seem like it's all about the romance when the details of the the philanthropic endeavor um, are really at the heart of the issue of making an investment. Precisely, precisely. I, I think the the investment piece is actually it's it's uh, it kind of brings to mind another topic, which because um, you asked me earlier, you know, where where could nonprofit professionals where um, maximize their impact? I, I think that one of the areas that nonprofit professionals fall short, or at least fail to fully recognize their potential is appealing to both the businessman or woman and the philanthropist. So I think that um, uh, fundraisers, I'm not sure that, again, I'm painting a very broad brush, and there are except, there are great exceptions, but fundraisers often don't realize that philanthropists have several budgets they could pull from. You know, we talked mm-hmm. about the foundation. We talked their personal dollars, their business dollars, their marketing dollars, et cetera, et cetera. And philanthropists will greatly increase their commitments if it advances one of their other interests in their lives. And once you could align um, a particular either personal or business interest, nothing to do with the foundation, nothing to do with their giving history, with their philanthropy, you've automatically expanded the pool of accessible capital. 
because now it's not just a charity budget you're plugging into. You're now plugging into the marketing business development or any other budget that they may, or entertaining budgets, entertainment budget they may have. And we give many examples of that in the book. Yeah, and I think that is a very important point. Is and again, that's that is incumbent upon you to get to know the the philanthropist and to remain flexible in your approach. I think part of what sometimes paralyzes the fundraising professional, the nonprofit executive, is you know sort of the never-ending search for more data to get the perfect ask. And I think mm-hmm. the perfect ask is only in the mind of the philanthropist. So it's really about <laughs> outlining the the scope of the project and allowing the philanthropist to imagine themselves to be part of that and to allow the discussion right. to guide the ask rather than going in for the ask. What do you think of those yeah, two not- approaches? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it keeps coming back to all the points that, that we have referenced so far. Um, and, um, I, you know, it was actually just coming back to the earlier question, because it was just it, it kind of I'm still thinking about the the fact that the time requirement. The interesting thing is that uh, uh, time and energy effort, most philanthropists, um, they want it to be easy, but at the same time, they don't necessarily expect it to be easy. You know, to to do to do their philanthropy strategically, thoughtfully, conscientiously, and to to maximize their bang for their buck. Um, you know, I mean, I was surprised how many philanthropists when I when we asked them what does it mean to you, what does philanthropy mean to you, how many of them said it means work. And um, you know, one one particular example I, I actually was kind of humorous from uh, came from a fellow named Charles Jurovinsky. He's an incredible man from Hamilton, Ontario, whose name is on several of the local hospitals and clinics. And when I asked Charles what philanthropy means to him, he proceeded to tell me uh, a short story. He said that there was a local healthcare organization in Hamilton was struggling to get new donors. So as an incentive, Charles offered to match any new gifts that came in within the 90 days, within the next 90 days. And he said that, you know, within that period, he arrived home one day, turned on his answering machine, and heard the following voicemail from his business comp- former business competitor. He said, hey, you jerk, I just cost you $20,000. And, and he turned to me and he said, that is what philanthropy means to me. It's a small discomfort for a much, much greater good. And the interesting thing is that they are prepared to endure that small discomfort. Now, the job of the nonprofit professionals, the board members, anybody involved in the, in the endeavor is to make it a as seamless, as easy, and personalized and personal as possible. But at the same time, they are prepared for, you know, they do understand that anything meaningful in life takes work, takes time, uh, takes engagement. And and, and they're, for the most part, if approached properly uh, with the right ingredients, are prepared to do so. Uh, Is there anything that... A uh, nonprofit executive can do to, uh, from the start, make it a more enjoyable endeavor for the philanthropist. So, y- yes, um, I, I first I, I think that the whole purpose of wining and dining, which I think does have a role of building rapport, is in order to understand um, understand where they're coming from. And, you know, I think several have asked me in the past, you know, what impact does the age of the philanthropist have to do with their giving, for example? Um, and, you know, the short answer is it's less to do with age and stage and more to do with where they're coming from, which generation they are from. I mean, that has a lot to do with it. And where, whether or not they were the, the actual wealth creators or, or, or their, uh, the wealth stewards. You know, there's a prevailing theory which many of our conversations and research have supported is that the first generation will be often more generous and flexible with dispensing with their wealth, with, with uh, their philanthropy, while the generation that did not earn the capital and perhaps, you know, it could be argued doesn't have the confidence that they could earn it is either considerably more philanthropically frugal or simply, you know, more focused on a narrow segment of philanthropy. And to a certain extent, without presuming the, the causes behind it, we found that to be true. But we also found, again, coming back to an earlier topic, that the younger donors tended to be more formal about their giving, more concerned about metrics and accountability. And in the opening, um, in the opening 
uh, rapport, the very first thing that, that most uh, nonprofit professionals should focus on is understanding where is this person coming from? What kind of person is it? Do they like to get to the point? Do they need reporting and accountability and metrics? Do they need to hear the story? Do they need a, a passionate plea? Like where, where are they coming from? What do they resonate with? And the approach should be considered after all the facts are gathered. Um, you know, I mean, and, and the, the, the other, and, and why it's important, I, I think we, sp- we spent a fair bit of time on this in the book because this is actually critical. We're the first, for, for, for the philanthropist that you're talking to, where their first philanthropic experiences came from is crucial. And so we, in one particular example, you know, in a conversation with a renowned philanthropist in the city who dedicates virtually all of his time to social causes, uh, particularly on sustaining the poor, he expressed his regret to us that his son is not as passionate about philanthropy. And so during, the con- uh, during, during our interview, we had asked him, you know, about his earliest philanthropic memories and his meaningful experiences. And he shared with us a beautiful story when he was a little boy going to inner-city Toronto, giving out blankets and jackets and, and, and sheets for kids who were poor who didn't have them. And then when we later in the interview asked him, well, what had he done to get his children involved in philanthropy? His response was, well, you know, we brought them in to sit on a couple of juries of the foundation and evaluate grant applications and adjudicate how much they receive and evaluate and participate and allocate resources and blah, 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 blah. All of that was wonderful. And it came with the right intentions. But can you think of two more profoundly different first experiences with philanthropy? One out there giving out blankets, jackets, pillows, and the other one sitting adjudicating in, you know, in, a, in a formal corporate boardroom. So understanding where the philanthropist is coming from, what were their defining earliest philanthropic experiences, will also uh, determine what is likely to resonate or how have they been philanthropically trained, as it were. And th- that kind of knowledge, uh, while it, it it could be written down someplace, and certainly maybe someone you know did a case study, as you've written many case studies uh, in this book, um, it, it the the richness of that kind of knowledge and information is best garnered in that sort of romance phase uh, with the philanthropist, which I think is about. Any other relationship, whether it's a business relationship or a philanthropic relationship, it's about building trust. It's about understanding who the stewards of your funds are going to be. Do you trust that they're going to be good stewards? Do you trust that they're going to understand what you want to accomplish? And as you said, where they're coming from and their background matters to where they're ultimately going to go. Precisely. And how do you learn that if you're if you're not spending the time to really get to know the the philanthropist? So we, we've got just about two and a half minutes left. I wanted to ask you in that time to do two things. One is summarize the key points that our listeners should not forget as they're entering into this philanthropic time of the year and they're going to have individual one-on-one conversations. What what should be top of mind? Uh, for understanding the philanthropic mind. And then finally, how can my listeners reach out to you and how can they get a copy of this book? Okay. Wow, it's a tall order. Um, a lot. Okay. Two minutes. So <laughs> I think the, the, the one of the things that we keep coming back to is that the truth is philanthropists want to give. They have The reason that they are reluctant to take meetings is because they have a hard time saying no. Um, and you know, they're trying to protect themselves. One had told us that she's afraid to take meetings because she'll fall in love with whoever walks through the door. And so um, that all takes us back to the fact that we're dealing with wonderful charitable people. And the idea is, first and foremost, how do we connect with them as people? And And that comes from understanding not just the what, but the why of past giving. We talked about paying attention to to the generational position of the target philanthropist. Uh, Talked about partnership, uh, not directly, but they are looking for partners in achieving a broader good. So do your your best to embrace the the challenging donor um, because they are the ones who are most interested in a true partner. You, You know, we talked about you annoying them when you don't ask. So help alleviate that temptation to give and provide them an opportunity for doing though. Uh, for doing so, um, 
you know, we want to, we talked about finding ways to align your cause with either their business or other uh, personal interests and, and being able to have a much bigger pot to dip into. And, you know, we talked in the last two pieces, which were the two pieces we started with, with people and passion. So people find the trusted contact and get them in as early in the relationship as possible because trust is great an uphill tip. battle. Great tips. I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to wrap it up there. How can people get a copy of this book? www.thephilanthropicmind.com or go to Amazon or in Canada, Indigo. And uh, you can contact me by mo at primequadrant.com. Terrific. Mo Litsky, wonderful book, great insights, people and passion. Uh, you've done a fantastic job here, and you're a wonderful guest. Thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.